Podcastle, episode 188, for December 20th, 2011. The Ghost of Christmas Possible, by Heather Shaw and Tim Pratt. Rated PG. Merry Christmas, everyone. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and being as it's the holidays, this week we've got a present picked out just for you. I don't know about the rest of you, but this year we at Podcastle were those annoying people who got our Christmas shopping done early on in the year, toward the end of the summer as a matter of fact. It started back when Tim Pratt tweeted something to the effect that he wanted to write a mashup story of a Karnacki-like ghost hunter and a Christmas carol. Now... I don't know whether or not Tim was, as we in the biz call, editor baiting or not, or if I was feeling all nostalgic for that one episode of The Real Ghostbusters low those many Saturday mornings ago. But I emailed him straight away and said, Hey, we at Podcastle love Karnacki. We at Podcastle love Tim Pratt and Heather Shaw, especially around the holidays. If you write this story, we'd love to see it. And so here, this week, our gift to you all is this. The first story we've ever commissioned, wrapped up in shiny paper and ribbons and bows. We are incredibly proud to present The Ghost of Christmas Possible by Heather Shaw and Tim Pratt. This one is definitely a Podcastle original. It's a family-friendly tale, but I want to warn you. I don't know if it was the holiday spirit or too much eggnog. Sometimes the two are a bit synonymous, but... I got a little choked up listening to this one when I previewed it. Fair warning. Heather Shaw and Tim Pratt are writers who married each other. If you haven't checked out their Christmas collaboration we featured last year, The Christmas Mummy, well, the holidays aren't over yet. After the spotlight we ran earlier this week, you've all hopefully gone out and bought Tim's book Briar Patch for your friends and family, and a copy for yourselves. He's also serializing Grim Tides, the latest of his Marla Mason book online in early January, thanks to a Kickstarter-funded project. Tim and Heather wanted to mention that they owed a debt to William Hope Hodgson's Karnacki stories, even though Karnacki himself doesn't appear in this tale. I don't know why, I suggested a Wellesian time machine at some point, but they nixed it. I also suggested making every third adjective queer, but they nixed that too. As John Hodgman would say, you're welcome. The story's read for us by one of my absolute favorite readers from our sister podcast, Pseudopod, the marvelous Ian Stewart. Here's a stocking stuffer worth of trivia for you. I know Stewart's a common name, so when I hit him up to read this one, I thought for a moment, huh, wouldn't it be funny if he was related to Alistair? Yeah, he's Alistair's dad. As our sound producer Peter said, How awesome would it be to have that voice tell you bedtime stories? If you've got a hankering for checking out the darker side of fiction with that classical feel, go and listen to Pseudopods' The Worm That Gnaws by Orrin Gray and Graves of Ships by Richard Marston, both read by Ian Stewart. You can hire him for your own voice acting needs. Just check out his page at Voices.com. So do your best to keep Christmas well and enjoy the story. The Ghost of Christmas Possible by Heather Shaw and Tim Pratt I was asleep, to begin with. 
The hour was just before midnight on Christmas Eve when a ferocious knocking woke me from my slumber. My first muddle thought, or rather hope, was that some spectre or spirit stirred beneath the cramped rafters of my newly rented accommodation. Such a prospect aroused in me no little excitement, for though I am well versed with the actions and habits of apparitions, ghosts, and hauntings of all sorts, I have always had to seek out such extraordinary creatures in situ, as it were, and their attentions had never been initially directed toward me. I thought immediately of the incident of the knocking well, when I helped to lay to rest the unquiet spirit of a lost child in Somerset, and so I leapt to my feet and pulled on my dressing-gown to begin my investigation. I followed the sound of the knocking, now ever more ferocious, through the corridor and down the narrow stairs. Alas! It soon became clear the knocking was of an entirely ordinary sort, attributable to some visitor pounding upon my front door, though the lateness of the hour did suggest some manner of emergency or alarm. When I opened the door, a wild-eyed creature, with a ghostly white aura about his head and loose robes that flapped wildly in the wintry winds, forced his way inside, and I reconsidered my assumption that he was a mortal man— I had certainly never encountered an apparition polite enough to knock, however vigorously, before entering, and when he spoke I was crushed by the mundane quality of his voice, which possessed none of the eerie harmonics I associated with those few spectral beings who deigned to speak. "'Mr. Hodgson, I presume, I have immediate need of your services, man.' He was a frightened old man, and I was acquainted with such. I had met the terrified, the dread-filled, and the desperate over and over during my researches into the occult. I cherished an instinctive sympathy toward him, but not perhaps enough sympathy to overcome my countervailing irritation at having been awakened from a pleasant slumber the night before a busy and holy day. Oh, the old fellow had probably been frightened by some ghostly vision, or else merely a reflection in a mirror, or another natural phenomenon twisted by the apprehensions of mortality that naturally attended the late-night thoughts of the aged. Perhaps I could reassure him with promises to study his problem on Boxing Day, and return to my own bed in the meantime. I didn't bother to close the door. Sir, you have me at a disadvantage to whom? Scrooge! he growled. Ebenezer Scrooge, I've heard about you, Hodgson, and though I wager your tales are all humbug, I'm a desperate man. I've been beset by ghosts, man. You will help me. Of course, the intruder's presumptuousness and rudeness now made sense, for in this part of London the name Scrooge was a byword for miserliness and bile. No surprise that a man so cloaked in negativity might attract untoward occult attention. His agitation was still extreme, and he paced my front room, his garments, an ordinary coat over a dressing-gown and robe of good quality, though almost as old as their wearer, flapping about him like the dull wings of a scavenger-bird. "'I would, of course, be happy to assist you,' I said, still standing by the open door, torn between my desires to shut out the draught and to see this old fellow off toward home. "'But given the lateness of the hour and the holiday tomorrow, perhaps we might begin on—' "'Yes, fine, you'll be paid, and paid again for the inconvenience.' He then named a price that made me stiffen, 
Having a small inheritance, I was not desperate for money, and generally investigated cases for no fee at all. The point for me was the knowledge. But Scrooge's legendary stinginess was proved by the paltry sum he offered. Sir, I regret my services are not available. Bah! Do you think a man of my years enjoys tromping in the snow at this late hour? I've been driven from my own bed by the ghost of my old partner, Jacob Marley. That was bad enough. But he promised there'd be more spectral visitations to my chamber tonight and two nights thereafter. Marley at least is known to me, though dead, but these other ghosts are strangers. It's not right for a man of my stature to have strange spirits gallivanting through his bedchamber at all hours. The old man smiled, a slight gleam in his eye, and prodded me in the chest with one crooked finger. So I propose this. You will be in my bed when the spirits arrive. Once they've shown themselves, if indeed they do, you may perform whatever acts you deem necessary to dispel them and discourage them from ever returning. I considered... Perhaps he had merely suffered a bad dream, brought on by guilt over what I could only imagine was a lifetime of ill-tempered acts, or caused by something more prosaic, like a plate of bad fish or spoiled potato. Describe this ghost for me. How did Marley present himself? Did you hear a sepulchral voice, or, or sense a cold spot, or glimpse a translucent form? Chains, Scrooge said gloomily. He appeared before me, looking much as he did in life, but weighed down with chains and locks, rattling them in a most objectionable fashion, and making dire prognostications. He bid me look out the window when I saw more. Dozens, scores of spirits similarly laden, groaning, dragging behind them the burdens of their finished lives. I stroked my chin-whiskers. "'That is a most interesting proposition,' I admitted. Oh, "'The chains, I mean. "'They could be very meaningful. "'And the promise of more visitors to come, "'of spirits not personally acquainted with you, "'that also interests me. "'To see the spirits of those you know in life is not unusual, "'but I don't care if it's interesting or not, man. "'Just clear them out of my house. "'I will spend the next few nights here in these humble accommodations.' He offered a slightly higher fee, and I, after the hesitation of half a breath, I assented. I had become interested in his case to study three spirits on three successive nights, and to be entirely honest, I did not relish the prospect of a Christmas day spent with the family of my fiancé. To be able to legitimately claim a pressing case would serve me well, and let me avoid the burdensome social necessity without giving unforgivable offence. "'It is decided, then,' Scrooge said. "'Get on with you. "'The first spirit is due when the clock strikes one.' "'I'll just need your dressing-gown,' I said, "'and your nightcap.' "'I confess I took some small delight "'in his expressions of outrage. "'Once I explained why I needed the items "'and offered him clothing from my own wardrobe in exchange, "'he handed his cap and gown over, "'though not without a certain amount of grumbling "'in the general vein of the impertinence of youth "'and liberties taken by the same. "'Soon I dressed in my own winter garb, "'and with his clothes wrapped in a bundle under my arm "'and his house-key in my pocket, "'I set off through the murky streets "'towards the house of Ebenezer Scrooge.' 
I wondered as I walked if I too was surrounded by invisible spirits, dragging behind them burdensome chains. I supposed I would soon find out. I was ensconced in the old man's musty bed, wearing his gown and nightcap, waiting for the first spirit to arrive. The darkness and the quiet were unbroken, however, and I began to suspect that Scrooge had indeed merely mistaken indigestion for a spectral visitation. I must have fallen asleep, for I was awakened when the clock struck, but to my surprise it struck twelve, a rank impossibility, as I had arrived later than that hour. I rose groggily from bed, wondering if I had somehow slept the clock round till noon, but the room was still dark. I groped my way to the window, rubbing away the frost with my sleeve, and saw only fog and darkness beyond. I returned to bed, thinking the clock must be in error, and expecting to pass an uneventful night, already planning to return to my own home to rouse Scrooge out in the morning. I did not sleep, though listening instead to the clock chime the quarter-hours, and when it sounded a single, melancholy tone, impossibly chiming the hour of one, surely long past by now, a piercing brightness filled the room. The curtains of the bed were flung back, and my eyes watered even as I narrowed my vision to slits. As my eyes adjusted to the glare, I beheld a strange figure. From its diminutive stature, at first I thought it was a child, but it was also like an old man, seemingly at once near the bed, and yet far away. White hair hung all around its head and down its back, but it had the smooth cheeks of youth, and its bare arms and legs were well-formed and muscular. It held a branch of holly in one hand, and its gown was festooned with summer flowers, but the strangest thing about the ghost was the jet of flame springing from the very top of its head, the source of the glaring brightness, like a gaslight turned high. The strange entity held a cap under one arm, most likely to extinguish the light when needed, and I sorely wished it would put the cap to that purpose. Despite the great light, it put out no heat to my disappointment, Scrooge was parsimonious with his coal, and his room was as chill as the grave. I knew at once that this was no ordinary ghost, by which I mean not the spirit of someone dead. There are other classes of supernatural beings, surely. The genii of the Mohammedans, the banshees who warned the Irish of death, even the terrifying angels who fulfilled the will of the Lord our God but I had never encountered such beings, and this creature fitted no description of any such that I had read or heard. Alas, I was ill-prepared for anything other than an ordinary ghost. I had set up my magnetic pentacle around the bed, a creation of wire and iron and lodestone of my own invention, which manipulated the magnetic fluid in the ether to contain and capture ghosts, but I suspected it would offer no hindrance to an entity as uncategorizable as this one. I sat in the bed, gazing at the ghost which gazed at me in return. I took my notebook from the bedside table and jotted down the broad aspects of its appearance so that I might refer to the notes later. I'm not ashamed to say my hands trembled a bit and I doubt anyone other than myself would ever be able to decipher my scribblings. The ghost 
still watched me in silence. Taking advantage of its patience, I made a full study of the apparition, jotting down all salient details. After a time, I put the notebook on the bedside table, noting the clock was stopped, still, at one o'clock. I took up my book once again to note this peculiar alteration of the normal flow time, which action finally elicited a quiet sigh from the ghost. So, I said, you must be the spirit whose coming was foretold to me. I am. The voice was low and soft, as if arriving from some great distance. I was cheered by this proof that my deception was successful. I had explained to Scrooge that while most spirits haunt a place, some haunt a person, and that in order to fool the ghosts into believing I was actually Scrooge, I would need to dress in his clothes and put a few strands of his hair in my pockets, along with, there is no delicate way to put this, a lightly used handkerchief. Thus cloaked by certain carriers of his essence, I hoped to trick the ghosts into believing I was their target. In turn, Scrooge dressed in my clothes to further muddle the etheric forms. It seemed the ruse had succeeded. "'If I may ask,' I said, "'who and what are you?' "'Exactly.' "'I am the ghost of Christmas past.' Fascinating. I took up my book again, and the spirit spoke, as if interrupting me. Your past. Hmm. I scribbled down more notes, though I sensed my lack of reverence or fear did not please the ghost. So I put my pen aside. Do you mind putting on the cap? It's useful to have a light to write by, of course, but it's a bit harsh all the same. What? Would you so soon put out with worldly hands the light I give? Is it not enough that you are one of those whose passions made this cap, and force me through whole trains of years to wear it low upon my brow? Oh, I do apologise, I had no idea. I considered making a record of his words, but decided instead to commit them to memory, lest I arouse the creature's ire. If the cap is composed of my <laughs> passions, should I surmise that your size and stature and the brightness of your light also have some direct correlation with the disposition of my soul or my actions in life? The creature only looked at me silently. I coughed, glanced at the motionless clock, and tried another approach. Why do you come to me tonight, spirit? "'Your welfare,' it said. "'Yes. Oh, well, very thoughtful. Thank you.' The spirit frowned. I tried to imagine what Mr. Scrooge would do in this situation, but having only a passing knowledge of the man, our recent midnight dealings notwithstanding, I was not on a firm footing here. The only conclusions I could reach regarded either rudeness, owing to his general character, or terror, owing to his inexperience with supernatural matters, neither of which seemed fruitful lines of pursuit. I said, "'What exactly do you mean to do, regarding my welfare?' Fortunately, the ghost seemed to have a plan. "'Take heed,' it said, and took me gently by the arm. It led me to the window, making clear its intention to spring out with me in tow. A mortal! I exclaimed. 
The spirit assured me that, as long as it touched my arm, I would not fall. In point of fact, it eschewed the window, and we passed instead through the wall. A slight tingling was the only sensation that attended that extraordinary act, and we emerged to see the dark city beyond had entirely vanished. A clear, cold winter day in the countryside lay before us, most extraordinary, though given the creature's demonstrated master of time, no surprise. I envied the ghost's power to stop clocks and turn back the hours, or so I suspected, as it named itself a ghost of Christmas past. Imagine the books I could read, the studies I could undertake, if I could make one minute last an entire night. The ancient questions I could answer if I could travel to the past and observe events for myself. Fascinating! I had encountered many spirits over the years, but never before had I been transported arm in arm with such a creature. Tell me, is our passage through physical matter and apparently space and time a power possessed by all ghosts, or are these properties particular to you alone? The spirit frowned at me, then gestured around the landscape. "'You recollect the way?' it asked, at last, a trifle uncertainly. I sighed. Clearly this snowy scene was meant to have some personal resonance for Scrooge, but to me it could have been any country lane. I would have to brazen it out, I supposed, and though I dearly wished the ghost would answer my inquiries, I had to respect its devotion to its mission, whatever that might be. No, I do not recollect the way I answered. Uh, it, it has been so long. The spirit's light flickered, then flared. You do recall the way, though you have forgotten this place for so many years. It sounded like a player on a stage, prompting its fellow actor to find his lost place in the script. Uh, uh, of course. I looked around, and noticing a little market town in the distance, began walking along the road towards it. It must have been the correct choice, for, as a group of laughing boys passed us, the spirit intoned, "'These are but the shadows of things that have been. They have no consciousness of us.' "'Indeed. Remarkable. But are we spectral or merely invisible? By which I mean, can we affect change or interact with this world? I feel the ground beneath my feet. Could I—' Open a door, say, or toss a rock through a window. The spirit narrowed its eyes at me. The school is quite deserted, said the spirit. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. How terribly sad, I said. The spirit peered at me curiously, then turned to enter the school. We looked upon a young boy, quite absorbed in his book. The spirit touched my arm, and figures resembling the characters from the book appeared outside the window. "'What a wonderful cast!' I exclaimed, as a parrot flew past the window, followed by a group of racing pirates. The spirit could conjure such things from another's imagination. What power! I wonder, what is he reading?' "'You do not remember?' The spirit looked concerned. "'Ah, well!' The nostalgia, you see, the emotions, quite overwhelming. Let us look at another Christmas. 
The boy grew larger. A scene played out where a young girl, presumably Scrooge's little sister, came to tell the boy he was to come home for good and all, thanks in part to her skilful manipulation of what seemed to be a rather unpleasant father. "'Oh, poor Scrooge!' I said, quite forgetting myself. "'What?' the spirit cried. "'Are you not Scrooge?' I feared the creature's wrath, but the spirit looked at once relieved and abashed. "'I see. You have draped yourself in his essence, an illusion easily pierced, now that I make the effort. But who are you, sir?' "'I'm a humble seeker after knowledge.' Mr. Scrooge, having heard of my interest in the occult, and finding himself quite alarmed by the visit from Mr. Marley's ghost, asked if I might ascertain whether or not you meant him any harm. "'Are you his friend?' I hesitated. "'I would not say so. I met him for the first time to-night. Otherwise I know him only by reputation. "'His reputation is well earned,' the spirit said one by his actions, which I seek to alter. He is a man in darkness, in need of enlightenment. I spread my hands. I regret any difficulties I may have caused your mission. But while we are here, in this timeless moment, as it were, if you answer a few questions for me, you would greatly aid in my enlightenment. But the spirit shook his head. Sir, I am born of Scrooge's life, and what I have to teach can only be learned by the man that made me. To stop time this way is not without cost, and these are long minutes wasted, time that should have been dedicated to saving a man's soul. You have stolen that opportunity from him or he has stolen it from himself by retaining your services. If I could only warn my fellow spirits of your subterfuge, the situation might yet be saved. But they inhabit non-overlapping and non-contiguous time-streams, so I only beg of you, be honest with them. Allow them to find Scrooge before it is too late. "'These time-streams you mentioned,' I began eagerly. But with that, I found myself back in Scrooge's bed. Scrooge was to be visited by three spirits, so I prepared myself for the next. I'd promised Scrooge that I would take his place, and I intended to do so, despite the first spirit's admonition. This was a rare opportunity to glimpse the secret workings of the world, and I could not bring myself to give up that opportunity. The clock struck one. Again. Was it somehow already Christmas night, I wondered, or had the spirit merely played another of his tricks with time? I hoped it was the latter, if only because I had not sent word to my fiancée that I would be unable to attend her family's festivities and she would not easily forgive such a transgression. No spirit appeared, so I took the opportunity to record further notes on my experience with the ghost of Christmas past. Perhaps there would be the makings of a monograph in this night. I finished writing and waited in bed impatiently, 
until I finally grew bored and decided to examine the room for any physical traces of the ghost's presence. Spectral ash from its candle flame head, perhaps. When I put on my slippers, stepped over the boundary wire of my magnetic pentacle and passed near the door, a strange voice called Scrooge's name and bade him enter. Beyond the door I found a hall, merrily lit by a roaring fire, walls festooned with boughs of holly and mistletoe, their leaves shiny green, their berries bright red and white. In the centre of the room rested a heap of cooked meats, turkey, geese, game, suckling pigs, great joints of rare beef as well as apples, oranges, pears, and all manner of mouth-watering food. Perched upon this mound, which made a kind of throne, sat a jolly giant of a man, with a torch like plenty's horn. "'Come in!' exclaimed the ghost. "'Come in and know me better, man!' I entered, and keeping my cap pulled low on my forehead, observed the spirit closely. He wore only a simple green robe, bordered in white fur, that opened to show his bare chest, and below, bare feet and legs. The heat of the blaze in the hearth made such an immodest garb seem practicable, even enviable. "'I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me!' Unlike the bizarre countenance of the previous spirit, this one seemed to be much like an ordinary man, albeit a large and unusually jovial one. He seemed pleased with my careful observation of him, and I took advantage of what I took to be his vanity, observing him from many angles and committing his form to memory. <laughs> "'You've never seen the like of me before!' exclaimed the spirit. "'Never!' I replied truthfully. I had a certain curiosity to see whether he was entirely like a man, so I said, "'If I may,' and proceeded to lift the hem of his robe. The spirit roared with surprised laughter and swatted my hand away, but not before I noted that he was indeed physically like any mortal man. Only more so. The spirit waved his finger in mock admonition. "'Have you never walked forth with the younger members of my family?' "'If you referred to the ghost of Christmas past, then yes, uh, just earlier tonight, or, or perhaps last night, though he seemed to be both younger and older than you are, and I confess there is not much of a family resemblance. If you mean some other sort of brother, then, in the absence of further information, I can only hazard a guess that—' "'That I have not.' The spirit's eyes twinkled. "'Never. I have more than eighteen hundred brothers, Hodgson.' As he spoke my name, I confess my mouth fell open, as I had to that point supposed that my ruse remained undiscovered. "'How did you know?' The spirit laughed. "'a hearty sound full of warmth quite unlike any other spectre I had ever encountered. "'Even those ghosts who are not terrifying have a solemn and mournful quality. "'As a class they're always brooding over failures, miseries, violence, betrayals. "'True, this was an entirely different order of being, "'but even the ghost of Christmas past had evinced a certain solemn mien.' 
I am the ghost of Christmas present. I and not a few of my brothers are well acquainted with you. You cannot fool me with that old man's garb. <laughs> ah, just so. This spirit, unlike the last, seemed at ease and willing to engage me directly, so I dared to continue. You know me, and so you have the advantage. If I, if I may ask, spirit, what sort of an apparition are you? You are not the lingering soul of a mortal man. The spirit cut me off with another mighty laugh, one that vibrated the floorboards and seemed to make my heart beat along in time. Oh, come, Hodgson, your curiosity is all well and good, but surely you understand a man's soul is at stake. All you need to know of me is that I've come to save that soul. Oh, then are you, as it were, connected to Mr. Scrooge's soul in particular, or a more universal and literal manifestation of the so-called Christmas spirit? Touch my robe. His voice, while still jolly, possessed a commanding tone that seemed to bypass my own volition, and I found myself obeying without a thought. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivy, turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, meat, pigs, sausages, oysters, pies, puddings, fruit and punch, all vanished instantly. We stood on the threshold of a small house. The spirit sprinkled a kind of incense from his torch upon the ground. This is the home of Bob Cratchit, Scrooge's clerk. His life would be much improved should our mission with Scrooge succeed tonight, for you see, we act not only on the behalf of Scrooge himself, but for all those whose lives he touches, all lives, especially in a city such as this, have bearing on other lives, you see. Behold this family, Hodgson, and know their fate is in your hands. A woman wearing a threadbare gown, brightened with colourful cheap ribbons, set the table, helped by a younger woman similarly attired. A young man stirred a pot on the stove. Small children raced about, shouting merrily about feasting on goose. Another young woman came in, and then a man, presumably father to these young ones, and I assumed Bob Cratchit himself arrived, carrying a small boy wearing an iron frame and bearing a little crutch. "'Was the boy in an accident?' I asked the spirit. "'Alas, that is Tiny Tim,' the spirit answered. "'It is no accident but sickness. "'Poor Tiny Tim! "'If only his father could afford to feed the family better, "'his illness may yet be overcome.' "'I was aghast. "'But surely you don't mean to tell me nothing but Scrooge's largesse can save him?' "'You might as well ask for the moon for aid, sir.' "'I see a vacant seat,' replied the ghost, "'in the poor chimney-corner, "'and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. "'If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, "'the child will die.' "'The spirit's hand lay heavy on my shoulder. "'This scene was meant for Scrooge to soften his miser's heart. "'If he should change his ways, it would not only save his own soul from an eternity of torment, "'but also the life of this boy, and it would brighten the prospects of everyone in this room.' "'A young man brought in a small goose, 
far too small for such a large gathering, and the family reacted as if it were the rarest of all birds, a feathered phenomenon. I watched them eat, their faces enraptured. It's the one time of the year when they get enough to eat, and do not push back from the table still hungry, the spirit intoned. Enough! I've seen enough. I'll go to Scrooge and tell him. I won't take his place any longer. I'll tell him, whatever you wish. God bless us, every one, said Tiny Tim. I groaned, physically pained at the sight of such a bright boy in such an ill body. God be good, spirit, I am convinced. The spirit, still smiling, shook his head. It may be too late, Mr. Hodgson. We are each of us given but one opportunity to sway Scrooge's heart, and I have instead spent mine in conversation with you. But while we are together, allow me to show you something else, a glimpse of the lives you touch. I feared something unpleasant, an object lesson in my own considerable failings as a man, a son, and a suitor, and while I did not relish the prospect, I resolved to bear up under it bravely. Very well, spirit, carry on. Touch my robe. Upon doing so, we were once again transported, arriving this time at a place I knew, the parlour in my fiancé's home. My young lady, dressed gaily in a bright green gown that set off her blonde hair, had just entered the room, and everyone's eyes turned to her. She approached a small pile of trinkets on a table in the middle of the room, and selected a handkerchief from among them. "'Oh, here we have a most delicate lady's handkerchief,' she went on to describe the item as if she were an auctioneer. "'Ah, yes, they're playing forfeits without me.' Terrible shame. I do so love a good parlour game. In truth, I found such enterprises the height of boredom, and though my betrothed was a sweet girl and bright enough, I confess I generally found the prospect of a haunted wood or a room filled with inexplicable howlings more enticing than her comfort. A failing, I must hasten to add, in my own character, and absolutely no reflection on hers. I knew I was a poor match for her, indeed for any one but the agreement had been made between our families long ago and i intended to do the gentlemanly thing watch said the ghost a young man who seemed vaguely familiar the son i thought of my anna's next-door neighbour and a childhood friend of hers stood up now admitting the handkerchief was his own that seemed odd as anna had specifically said it was a lady's handkerchief but then I saw her amused expression, and the slight flush in her cheeks, and realised the handkerchief must actually be her own. How then had it come into his possession thoroughly enough to serve as his personal item in a game of forfeits? My pondering was interrupted when the young man burst into song as his forfeit stunt to reclaim the item. The song was full of witty word-play and double meaning. It was a love-song and he sang it to Anna. Her father, a man with a keen scientific mind that I admired, frowned, but most of the guests exchanged knowing smiles, none of them seeming even particularly scandalised. This had clearly been going on for some time. I wondered how long, and how I had never noticed their flirtations before, but in truth, how often did I see her? Only when duty demanded— 
and our wedding date, never firmly set, had receded into an uncertain future, the subject rarely broached, and even then only by our parents. As I saw Anna smile at her neighbour, and then try to hide her smile, the most surprising thing I felt was the remarkable absence of emotion. I simply did not care that my fiancé was flirting with another man. Oh, dear spirit! You have people in your life, but you're not in theirs, the spirit said. If you would right the wrong you've done by taking Scrooge's place tonight, you should cease to heap hardship on those you profess to love. You would do better to free them, before you are all bound too firmly in the chains of obligation to escape. I was going to inquire what exactly he was suggesting, when I noticed something protruding from under the spirit's robe. Forgive me, I said, but I see something strange, as if part of some creature is hidden behind the hem of your robe. Is it a foot or a claw? It might be a claw, for all the flesh there is upon it. Look here. He parted his robe to reveal two wretched children, clinging miserably to his legs. They were a boy and a girl, yellow, meagre, ragged, scowling, and with pinched faces. As jovial as he was, they were miserable to the same extreme. "'Are they... are they yours?' I never know what to say when confronted with an acquaintance's children. Commenting on the beauty and brightness was obviously out of the question. "'They are man's,' cried the spirit, "'and they cling to me.' This boy is ignorance, this girl is want. Beware them both, and— Ah, they are a supernatural manifestation, are they? Do you mean they are want and ignorance of Scrooge specifically, or of mankind in general? The spirit's smile finally faltered. Mr. Hodgson, he shook his head, you are a strange mortal— but you may yet somehow serve the good. He gathered the children back into his robes. The bell struck twelve. The room plunged into darkness, a shadow that seemed thick as blood pudding, and I sensed the ghost of Christmas present had departed my presence. For a moment I feared I was to be left in the dark, judged unfit for human society, I cannot help it if my interests lie elsewhere, but soon I beheld a new phantom, hooded and robed in black, proceeding forward gravely. It might have been a shadow detached from the greater darkness that surrounded us. I resisted the urge to cower and straightened my spine. I was always adept at solving puzzles, and the logical progression here seemed clear. Are you the ghost of Christmas yet to come? The ghost extended one bony finger to point at me accusingly, then let its hand drop. The ghost pushed back its hood, revealing a wizened head that looked much like Scrooge's own, but more shrunken, almost cadaverous, skin pale as snow, except for hectic red spots on each cheek. Mist swirled around us, and the darkness formed itself into shapes, bare trees, iron gates, mausoleums, and, and headstones. The ghost sat on a convenient tombstone and regarded me with dull black eyes. "'Well, well, well,' he said. 
I was expecting Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge. I had visions for him, visions of the future awaiting him if he did not alter his path, a grave, unmourned, a dying child and a poor family, their hearts gladdened by Scrooge's death, for the settling of his estate would give them more time to pay their debts and stave off ruination. The ghost sighed. But now, here I am with you. What are we going to do with you? I would be grateful for but an hour of your time, I said. I believe you could answer many questions for me about the nature of time and the veil between life and death and the meaning of... The only meaning that concerns me is the meaning of Christmas. Your quest for knowledge has come at the expense of your own humanity, Mr. Hodgson. You chose to forsake your loved ones, or those you absent-mindedly claim to love, on Christmas Day, in order to pursue esoteric studies. My interest has always been more with the dead than the living, I confessed, but I have never been a cruel man as Scrooge is. I've done much good, I think. I've helped unquiet spirits find their rest, and given peace and comfort to those frightened by apparitions. I'm never malicious, but I confess I am sometimes, um, distracted, preoccupied. Would you like to see your future? the ghost said. I did not hesitate. I will gladly witness anything you choose to show me. The ghost pointed to a nearby headstone. There is your future, a lonely grave, bow close, and you may read the date of your passing. It is not so terribly far in the future. You meddle in matters beyond human understanding, and some of those matters are dangerous. You will eventually encounter a haunting more potent than you expect, something your magnetic pentacle cannot contain, and it will claim your life. Worse, it will consume your soul. Scrooge faces an eternity dragging the monstrous chains he forged in life, but you will have no eternity at all. At least you will not leave a widow, as the young lady to whom you have promised yourself intends to pursue the dictates of her own heart with her mother's blessing and her father's grudging acceptance. I confess a certain feeling of relief at that prediction, but the prophecy of my death quite overwhelmed that positive emotion. I did not approach the stone. Tell me, ghost, are these the shadows of things that will be, or are they shadows of things that may be? Unless you change your life, what may be and what will be are one and the same. I show only the end of the current path. If the path changes, the destination may as well, or so we hope. I cannot say, for it is not within my power to see what might be. Would you change your path, Mr. Hodgson?
I clenched and unclenched my hands. I, I, I do not wish to die, of course, but if I were to give up my researches and cease my occult studies and no longer lend my expertise to assist those in need, I would feel as if I had already died, or at any rate had no purpose in my life. I could marry and try to devote myself to family, but I trailed off. There may be another way, the ghost said. I and my ilk are like nothing you have seen before. We are not ghosts precisely, and nor are we precisely angels, though we choose at time to appear as either, or both. I myself have power to reveal what will happen in Christmases to come. My associates can, in their own turn, reveal what is and what once was. But there is another power that none of us possess, the power to reveal what might have been were circumstances other than they are, the power to show the Christmases that could have been if other choices had been made, other paths followed, other actions undertaken. The ghost pulled up his hood, his face vanishing again into darkness. If you had such a power, Mr. Hodgson, if you became the ghost of Christmases, that might have been. What would you do with that gift? To become one of you, I said, breathless at the very idea, to transcend the mortal world and become part of the world beyond. Why, I would dedicate myself to the full understanding of— No. The ghost said, what would you do now, this very night? I suppose I would go to Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge. I would use my power to attempt to change his life and, and save his soul. It seems the least I can do, as I've spoiled the efforts of you and your fellows. Well, then, the ghost of Christmas yet to come intoned, let me confer with my superiors. The clock struck one, and I stepped into my own rented bedroom, where Mr. Scrooge snored mightily beneath my blankets. I could see things more clearly now, as I had only dreamed of seeing them in my old life. The air itself shimmered with potential, and all the world seemed a veil that could be twitched aside to reveal something new and wondrous underneath. I had already parted those veils shortly after my new powers were bestowed upon me, I used my new gifts to see what would have become of my friends and acquaintances if I had never been born, and the results were mixed. Those I had saved from unquiet spirits were unhappy and lost, but my Anna was far happier with me gone, marrying her childhood friend. I could not change history, but I could affect the present, and with the knowledge that only I impeded Anna's happiness, I left my mortal life behind without a qualm. Let them believe I had been taken by a ghost. And why not? I wanted to explore my powers further, study variables, observe the consequences of certain changes on both personal and social histories. But I had other work to do this night. I set up the magnetic pentacle around my bed as Scrooge slumbered, with my new understanding it was a trivial matter to reverse the pentacle's field so that instead of trapping the spirits of the dead the pentacle would instead act to contain the living 
Scrooge would not be able to flee my presence and find another occultist. He would hear what I had to say. He would see what I had to show him. I touched the old man's shoulder, and he woke with a start. He narrowed his eyes at me and hissed, Hodgson, what you doing here, man? Please, Mr. Scrooge, I feel I know so much about you. I wish we could speak on more familiar terms. I beg you to call me by my Christian name. Clarence. Mr. Hodgson, Scrooge said, what is the meaning of this? Return to my home and eradicate them troublesome spirits at once. Alas, I am afraid I have become just such a troublesome spirit, Ebenezer. I put my hand on his shoulder, and the bed vanished, the room swirling with white snow. Each man's life touches so many lives. Every action has consequences, every word a stone thrown into a pond, creating ripples. Let me show you what your Christmases could have been if you had made other choices, if you had only kept your beloved close to your heart, or shown kindness to poor Bob Cratchit, or even to your nephew, or followed Fezziwig's example, and let business feed a life rather than allowing it to consume you. Let me show you how happy you could have been in another life, a life that you could have chosen. I leaned in close to him, drawing the swirling mist around me like a cloak, briefly letting them take on the shape of angels' wings, but no, I had hardly earned that yet. And if all else fails, Ebenezer, I will show you how the lives of all those around you would have been improved if you had never been born, in hopes you will choose to live a life that enriches rather than diminishes your fellow man. Humbug! Scrooge shouted. Away with you, you conjurer! His protestations did him no good. By then we were on our way. Though I was new to my position and unsure of my powers, I had hope that I might show Scrooge the virtue of keeping Christmas well, and to demonstrate that by doing good for others— and by truly knowing ourselves, we might find our God somehow still willing to bless us, every one. And welcome back. I unabashedly love Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I think it's one of those stories that I love more and more every time I encounter it. I got choked up even watching the Muppets version of it earlier this month with my kids and I absolutely love the reading Tim Curry did of it. Every time I experience it, I'm amazed by how relevant it still is. How initially Scrooge is just happy to let the poor go to jails and the sick die off so they can decrease the surplus population. Just turn on the news and you'll hear contemporary politicians echoing those words to crowds of applauding voters. So, I get why I love a Christmas, Carol. If Scrooge can be redeemed, if he can change, then anyone can. But sometimes that feels almost like it lets the rest of us off the hook. Because despite what I hear on the news, I don't really know anyone who's that much of a Scrooge. And I love the way this story reminded me how connected we are to each other's lives even if we aren't aware of it. How much of a difference our action, or even inactions, can make on the lives of others? If we don't do something, others may suffer under the scrooges of this world and their miserliness. 
So I appreciate that this story inspires me to want to do better than I am. To not only care about the people close to me, but those I don't even know. No matter how you celebrate the holidays, I think that's a movement we can all get behind. I hope your holiday this year is filled with love and joy and giving and action. Scrooge was as good as his word. I'd like to think that we all have it in us to be that good too. Alright, feedback this week is for a different kind of ghost story, albeit one that was no less charming. Zen Cho's Rising Lion, The Lion Bows. A story about a ghost hunting troop of lion dancers read by Tracy Yoon. Infinite Monkey said, Whoa, secret undercover Chinese Ghostbusters, cool. I like the multicultural nature of the overall narrative and the sense of parallel world among the Chinese. And I thought it had a very touching ending, sweet without being treacly. I would like to see this team of lion dancers take on a really malevolent spirit in another story, though. Devoted135 agreed, saying, This story made me smile from beginning to end. I love that it went the heartwarming route, though. I do agree with Infinite Monkey that I would love to hear a second installment in which our band of lion dancers, including George, takes on a more menacing ghost. And people were very complimentary of Tracy's reading, very happy that we were able to use a reader who could get the Chinese pronunciations correct. Thanks so much for that feedback. We'd love to hear what you thought of our stories. Sign on to forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's offering. Back in October, I told Tim and Heather how happy it made me that they were writing Christmas stories together. I don't know if this is a new tradition we're starting here or not, the way Steve used to buy Murr stories every year at Escape Pod. It's definitely not a promise of things yet to come. I haven't spoken with Anna about this, and we take each story on an individual basis, but I'd like to think of it as something that's... possible. If you're looking for more Christmas fiction, there's some really great stuff out there. Tim's written another story for the Drabblecast called A Fairy Tale of Oakland. Awesome title, and I can't wait to hear that. Pseudopod is doing a whole month of seasonal stories, for those of you who don't mind the darkest nights of the year. And if you're one of our paid subscribers, we at Escape Artists might just have another gift for you coming very, very soon. No, no, not the Alphabet Quartet. The Trio of Terror? Yeah, hopefully that's already showed up, but uh, maybe something else. Maybe even 12-somethings. Well, that's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Associate Editor of Episodes Possible, Anne Leckie, our poor sound clerk, Peter Wood, and your editors of Episodes Past, Present, and Future, Anna Schwend and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week, pushing ourselves to our limits with a story by Donna Glee Williams. Thanks again for hanging out with us this Christmas. And may God bless us, everyone. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Charles Dickens said, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. What is right and what is wrong? Oh, with us
<laughs> You've never seen the like of me before.